everyone, and thank you for joining us for the fifth Bogleheads Live. My name is John Luskin, and I'm the host for today. My co-host for today is Christine Benz, who for Bogleheads needs little introduction. Christine Benz is Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance and author of 30-Minute Money Solutions, a step-by-step guide to managing your finances, and author of The Morningstar Guide to Mutual Funds, five-star strategies for success. Today, we'll be discussing two topics with Christine. I'll rotate between asking Christine questions that I got beforehand from the Bogleheads forum at bogleheads.org and Bogleheads Reddit, and taking live audience questions from the folks here today. But before that, first, let's start by talking about the Bogleheads, a community of investors who believe in keeping it simple, following a small number of tried and true investing principles. You can learn more at the John C. Bogle Center for Financial Literacy at BogleCenter.net. Also, an announcement. We'll be holding the annual Bogleheads Conference on October 12th through 14th in the Chicago area. We're pretty sure the agenda and speaker lineup will knock you out in a good way. And mark your calendars for future episodes of Bogleheads Live, all times Eastern. On Thursday, April 21st, that's next week, Avantis's Suheel Wahal will be discussing mutual fund costs. And the following Thursday on April 28th at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, Eric Balchunas will be discussing his new book, The Bogle Effect. How John Bogle and Vanguard turned Wall Street inside out and saved investors trillions. Before we get started on today's show, a disclaimer. This is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment, tax, or other financial planning decisions. Christine, thank you for joining us today on Bogleheads Live. Before today, you shared some great work you've done on asset correlation and sustainable portfolio distribution rates. And folks, I know I just said some geeky terms there, so allow me to break that down super quickly. Asset correlation is nerd speak for just how much two different types of investments perform. For example, frequently when U.S. stocks lose value, junk bonds also lose value. Therefore, U.S. stocks and junk bonds are said to be correlated or have a high correlation. Alternatively, at the same time, U.S. stocks lose value and sometimes treasuries frequently gain value. Therefore, those two types of investments, U.S. stocks and U.S. treasuries, are said to have a low correlation. Ideally, one creates an investment portfolio with different types of investments that have low correlation with each other. So before I dive into sustainable distribution rates, let's talk about asset correlation first. And let me turn it over to you, Christine, and ask you, what do Bogleheads need to know about asset correlation? So first, thanks, John, for hosting these Twitter Spaces events. I think it's just a great contribution to the Bogleheads community, in addition to the great forum that has been there for many years and the great wiki site that they've created. So thank you for doing that. And I'm excited to hear your conversation with Eric Balchunas because his book looks fascinating. I just received my copy the other day and talked to Eric in preparation for the book as he was working on it. So I'm excited to hear what he has to say. So in terms of correlations, I think you stated it really nicely, John, that if you have a portfolio that is diversified, that means that you have asset types that aren't moving in the same pattern. So stocks and treasury bonds have historically been a nice uncorrelated pair where correlations have actually been negative over most of the past 30 years. 
And the bottom line is that if you have a portfolio that is adequately diversified, that does have those negatively correlated assets, it tends to mean that you are going to have something that is performing poorly at any given point in time. So a really good example over the past decade was the commodities category. I know it's a category that Bubbleheads generally downplay or ignore altogether. And I it's hard to argue with that. But that is a category that has historically shown a nice kind of negative correlation with stocks. And more recently, the category has performed really well as stocks have performed poorly in 2022. So you're looking for some asset types that have a negative or low correlation with each other. I think it's also worth noting that Just because something is positively correlated with something else doesn't mean that there's no reason to hold it. So I think a good example of that would be non-U.S. stocks, where we've seen over the past several decades rising correlations with U.S. stocks. And I think that there are a lot of reasons for that. But one of the key reasons is that the U.S., that the markets have globally have become more correlated with each other and our economies have become more interdependent, which is one reason we've seen non-U.S. stocks have rising correlations with U.S. stocks. But nonetheless, I would argue that investors should continue to maintain globally diversified equity portfolios, in part because there are some great companies that happen to be domiciled outside the U.S., Another point I would make on the diversification front is that when we do these asset class correlation examinations, it's like any other measure of past performance where what we've seen in the past may not carry forward into the future. And in fact, one thing we examined in our research recently was the issue of rising interest rates, that if we have an equity sell-off that is driven in part, at least by rising interest rates, which is what we've seen so far in 2022, and we saw in the tail end of 2021, you will potentially see treasury bonds and other bond types, in fact, performing in sympathy with stocks. So if stocks are going down because of rising rates, well, bonds go down during those periods too. So we may indeed see rising correlations among bonds and stocks in the years ahead if we have sort of a persistent pattern of rising yields. So I'll, I'll just leave it there. There's a lot to chew on in the realm of correlations. I happen to think it's fascinating just to examine how things move around over periods of time. One category that we were looking at in our paper that has been somewhat ascendant from the standpoint of delivering nice negative correlation with U.S. equities is cash. And there's no reason that cash should have any correlation with anything because it's, you know, not a a return producer. But what we've examined in our paper was the differential in terms of correlations with cash and other bond types. And what we've seen, especially as yields have been so depressed across the board with fixed income investments, we've seen that cash has looked almost as good as bond investments from the standpoint of delivering a low correlation and good diversification for U.S. equity exposure. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that, Christine. Absolutely. Correlations are increasing. That's something I think most investors are aware of, or at least if uh, you're a super nerd, present (laughs) company uh, included. And I absolutely agree with you. Yes, correlations are increasing, but you still want that international diversification. Rick Ferry often mentions that 
U.S. stocks right now are mostly concentrated in tech. So by diversifying internationally, you get sector diversification, industry diversification, especially now, given the way U.S. markets are structured. Such a good okay. point, John. I would point out that non-U.S. markets do tend to be more sort of in the value space, that banks are a bigger percentage of the market, energy companies for better, for worse, more recently for the better. They're more dominant in non-U.S. markets than in the U.S. market today. Wonderful. Ross, you should be live now to go ahead and ask a question on asset correlation to Christine Benz. Yes. Yes. Hi, John. Hi, Christine. Thanks for doing this. So, Christine, if we're looking at past performance and we know that correlations are dynamic and they change, what process do you think investors should use if they're trying to build a portfolio for the future? How do they attempt to identify uh, assets that are likely to be less correlated with each other. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for that question, Ross. It's a good one and one I've thought a lot about. And what I come back to is that it's worthwhile to not get stuck in the weeds of examining these correlations. Pick your head up and think about, well, what are the intuitive reasons that these different asset classes might perform differently? And I happen to think that the reason that treasuries and U.S. stocks have been negatively correlated has a good intuitive underpinning. In recessionary environments, when stocks often fall and stay down for sustained periods of time. That's a period when, in fact, investors are gravitating to safety. It's oftentimes when the Federal Reserve is taking action to reduce interest rates. That helps underline why we have seen that historically negative correlation between those two assets. And I do think that as we think about the future, I think that that pattern will persist in a recessionary environment I do think that treasuries will probably continue to be good equity market ballast. I also think that cash is an asset that you want to hold as kind of your safe asset that you could spend from, that you could liquidate in a pinch no matter what was going on with the stock or bond markets. So I would come back to that when I think about constructing a portfolio rather than kind of getting lost in the matrices of of the asset class correlations to really step back and think about, well, when equities are in free fall, what are the assets that are likely to deliver at least a stable return or maybe even a, you know, a, a growing return? And I do think that that treasuries and cash and core bond fund types are all reasonable places to be. I'm a little less sanguine about some of the other categories long-term that have provided good equity market ballast. So commodities, precious metals have historically been pretty negatively diversified, but I tend to think of those as sort of non-core, non-essential categories for most investors' portfolios. I absolutely agree. And I think perhaps another way to say what you said, Christine, is that there are these asset classes that just make sense to hold as part of your portfolio. So when we're looking at, hey, what should I put in my portfolio? It's not necessarily, oh, gosh, what does this number on a spreadsheet say based (laughs) on historic performance? It's what is the fundamental reason for this particular asset being a valuable a diversifier. So when you go to that level of analysis, you get a different outcome when you're analyzing treasuries versus commodities. Two very different things. Maybe they've performed similarly 
under market panics. But if you look at what informs that performance, then you come to the conclusion, hey, treasures really do, do make sense, but I'm not really so sure about commodities. As an extreme example of that, there is a, a book written by a motivational speaker who I won't name, who tried <laughs> his uh, stab at doing a personal finance book. And the takeaway from his book was hold a portfolio that's 70%-ish bonds, uh, 40%-ish long-term treasuries. And the reason why he came to that conclusion is because his period for analysis was during a period of declining interest rates. So of course, long-term bonds are going to make sense in a period of declining interest rates. But that sort of analysis stops short at just looking at the numbers and then going in deeper of, okay, here are the numbers, but why are those numbers that way? And when you do that deeper level analysis, that's when you come to the conclusion, treasuries probably, commodities, maybe not so much. Yeah, good point, John. And I want to make a quick point on the long-term versus intermediate and short-term treasuries. I think that some investors take it as an article of faith that the best diversifier for U.S. equities would be to go long in terms of treasury exposure. The interesting thing is when we examine the data, we see that short and intermediate-term treasuries confer just as much diversification as do long-term treasuries. And long-term treasuries, of course, are also super volatile. I think most individual investors would prefer not to own, say, a long treasury fund if they could own an intermediate or short-term fund, especially given how limited the yield differential is on uh, long versus intermediate and short-term. So that's one thing I would think about, you know, you're sort of positioning your portfolio. You don't need to go all the way into long treasuries to pick up that diversification benefit. Short and intermediate term do a decent job as well. I think what's interesting to me is just within the bond space, some of the bond types that don't do as well in terms of conferring diversification benefits. So John, you mentioned junk bonds. Well, that's sort of like the best example of fixed income type that does not add much diversification away from your equity exposure, that we tend to see junk bonds move very much in sympathy with the stock market. But it's interesting when you even look at some of these other categories, like actively managed core bond funds, what we call core plus funds at Morningstar. These are funds that have the latitude to own, say, 15% of their portfolios in junk bonds. They might own non-U.S. bonds. They can dabble in some more exotic fixed income types. When we looked at the performance of those assets, and by the way, those are very popular funds. So that's where like a PIMCO total return or Dodge and Cox income would land. What we see is generally less diversification benefit from those types of funds versus, say, a treasury fund or even, you know, a total bond market fund, which has significant exposure to government bonds. Gosh, I love this stuff. I could geek out on <laughs> bonds all day. Uh, to echo something uh, you said earlier, absolutely, uh, long-term treasuries are weird in that, yes, they do have that rallying effect that is pretty extreme during those uh, market panics frequently, but you've got a lot of interest rate risk when you do go long. So intermediate term can be a sweet spot between getting that rally effect of those treasuries increasing during market panics, being that valuable portfolio diversifier. It's not quite as strong as what you see with long term, but then you don't get that really severe uh, interest rate risk. Absolutely. Let's jump to David next. You're live. Hey, Christine, Go ahead. Thank you for doing this. I've, I've followed your work uh, 
over the years. And, uh, you know, I think you do a tremendous job communicating, you know, relatively, you know, I think at times esoteric subjects such that uh, people like myself, my, my mother <laughs> can understand. So thank you for that. <laughs> thank you. You know, it's interesting, you know, correlation at the end of the day is just a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's a math, it's a mathematical construct. And uh, mm-hmm. what I increasingly have noticed over the years, and I'm, I'm not a mathematician, but I do kind of like statistics. I think it's important. I think a lot of people kind of confuse correlation and causation. And your comment on understanding kind of like why two asset classes might be have a low correlation, I think that is absolutely spot on. And I think there's a tendency to kind of just say, oh, you know, over the last five years, X and Y have had a low correlation, therefore they make sense without kind of digging into the, uh, you know, the reason why that might be in terms of the, you know, fundamental reasons, which brings me to my question. You know, I, I find that oftentimes, you know, people will get confused with the macroeconomic backdrop and the expected return or the actual return of, for example, stocks. So this idea, you know, that, you know, the correlation between macroeconomic situation and the return of, for example, equities, that correlation historically has been very, very low. And I'm just wondering, you know, over your years of communicating with individual investors, how do you communicate, you know, the reasons, the fundamental reasons why the correlation between equities and the macroeconomic situation is, you know, for all intents and purposes, non-existent over long periods of time. I was just wondering if you could kind of touch on that, given that the topic is correlation. Thank you. Yeah, I love your point, And I completely agree. Rather than getting lost in the weeds where you're examining these correlations and you see, aha, the utilities sector appears to be inversely correlated with the large growth sector. What does it mean? It's wise to take a step back and think about well, which of these trends make sense? Where can we find some sort of fundamental and carry it forward? In terms of the macroeconomic conditions not being correlated with equity market performance, you're absolutely right that historically there hasn't been a strong connection between the two. I would say if there's one sort of data point that tends to be loosely correlated with future market performance, it tends to be market valuation. So it's not foolproof. And there may be periods of time where some part of the equity market that appears cheap stays cheap, goes lower for a a long period of time. But generally speaking, that is the most sort of predictive thing that you could look at as you're sort of positioning your portfolio and trying to figure out, well, st- will stocks perform well? What w- what will perform well within my stock within my stock portfolio? If you can tune in on valuation a little bit, I think that can be your clue to know when to rebalance your portfolio. If you know stocks have ex- enjoyed an extended upswing. Those can often be opportune times to rebalance out of stocks and put money toward the safer parts of your portfolio. So I would say if there's anything that you want to kind of anchor on when thinking about how your might how your portfolio might behave in the future and sort of think about how to set it up for future success, I think valuation is is the thing to focus on. And that gets me back to that idea about non-US stocks and kind of the reason to continue to keep the faith in non-US stocks, I think is 
it's a diversification argument, but it's also a valuation argument where we've had a long running period of outperformance from U.S. stocks relative to non-U.S. And by the estimates of many firms that do these sort of capital markets forecasts, the expectation is that non-U.S. stocks will have better returns over the next decade than U.S. So great questions. And, and thank you for the kind words, too. Wonderful. Thank you, Christine. Let's jump to sustainable distribution rates next. And to translate that from nerd speak to plain English, what is a sustainable distribution rate? This is just the investment nerd's way of saying, how much money can I take out of my savings, my investment portfolio each year, and not have that portfolio run out of room before I run out of life? So let me jump to a question that I got beforehand from the Bogleheads Forum. And then we have an audience question that we'll jump to next on sustainable distribution rates. So uh, Annette Louisiane from Bogleheads.org Forum asks, in a recent excellent podcast on whether this is a good or bad time to retire, Ms. Benz mentioned that all firms Morningstar consulted with believed XUS would outperform U.S. equities in 2022. Obviously, the Ukraine war had not begun when those predictions were made. What are her thoughts about ex-U.S. investing this year? And have any of those firms, to her knowledge, changed their predictions? Yeah, good question. And it kind of gets back to what we were just talking about with the valuation discrepancy between non-U.S. stocks and U.S. stocks. That is the major factor that would lead firms like Vanguard and my colleagues in Morningstar Investment Management and Schwab to suggest that non-U.S. stocks should perform better over the next decade than U.S. I have taken a quick look at this after I saw Annette's question, and I saw that Schwab recently released some updated capital markets forecasts factoring in recent market action. And indeed, the expectation is that non-U.S. stocks will outperform U.S. by a small margin, not a huge margin, but a small margin over the next decade. I also took a look at Research Affiliates, which has a nice kind of interactive asset class chart that you can refer to to gauge that firm's assessment of sort of forward-looking market return expectations. The firm does have substantially higher expectations for non-U.S. stocks than U.S., especially emerging markets. Um, And I would note that this has been sort of a persistent bias on the part of research affiliates that they very much like emerging markets equity, and so that they think that that part of the non-U.S. market will drive much better returns for non-U.S. stocks over the next decade. So it's a work in progress. But in general, we've seen non-U.S. stocks perform worse than U.S. stocks year to date. So I would say that that valuation story is very much alive and well as 2022 has unfolded. I like that Schwab updated their crystal ball. (laughs) Well, you know, the fact is we've all got to use something. I know that uh, people often disparage market forecasts, but if you're doing some sort of financial plan, you have to plug in some sort of return assumption, right? And with fixed income assets, it's pretty straightforward. Your starting yield is what you could expect to earn roughly, give or take over the next decade. With equities, you've got to use something. And I would argue that you shouldn't use past returns because they're far too rosy. So if you were to use, you know, 11 or 12% return assumptions for US equities, that's going to make your plan work out well. 
but it might lead you to undersave or overspend if you're retired. So there are risks, I think, to taking past returns and just extrapolating them forward. You need to use something that is based on reality. And that's where I think that these these forecasts can come in. Very well said. As a financial planner, I'm biased towards being a little more pessimistic about any future investment return. If we do that and things don't work out well, then you would have saved extra money. Hopefully, that would have balanced out the risk. And alternatively, if those ultra-pessimist predictions were too pessimistic, well, now maybe you've got a little bit more money than you need, which is a nice problem to have. Let's jump to Cody next. I'm going to make him a speaker. And Cody, you can ask your question uh, to Christine on sustainable distribution rates. Hey there, John and uh, Christine. Great to see you both here. This is awesome, awesome uh, space. It's also, uh, so I've written down my question just to be a little fast here. So while some white papers and investors suggest using a bucketing approach is a drag on returns and therefore results in lower sustainable distribution rates. So I prefer to align the investments uh, risk and return expectations with when the money will be needed to meet living expenses whether short, intermediate, or long-term savings needs. Also considering, of course, asset tax location. Uh, And the approach, of course, helps with the real anxiety of moving from accumulation to distribution phases. So, uh, Christine, how do you believe choosing between a total return or a bucketing distribution strategy should change the expectations for sustainable withdrawal rates? Yeah, it's a good question. I've seen those papers criticizing the bucket approach, and maybe we should just quickly say what that is. It's kind of a time segmentation approach where you're organizing your portfolio by your anticipated spending horizon. So I always credit the approach to Harold Avensky, who is a financial planner and was a professor at Texas Tech in financial planning. He probably 12 years ago, he and I were talking about retirement decumulation, and he kind of put the bug in my ear that he used the bucket approach with his clients. And the idea is that he would set aside a cash bucket, maybe one to two years worth of liquid reserves, and then he would run kind of a total return portfolio alongside of it to you know deliver the portfolio's growth over time and and you know he would manage it and, and periodically refill that cash bucket as the retiree spent from it using rebalancing. And what he said to me at the time, I remember it still kind of sticks in my in my mind. He said, my clients really tend to find it a comfortable strategy for their retirements that I'll call them when the market has been down a lot and they'll say, well, yeah, I know I've got my cash bucket set aside. So I know that that's not going to jeopardize the cruise that we had planned with our family next year. It's not going to jeopardize our ability to go out to dinner on Saturday night with our friends. And so, you know, anytime I hear something like that, really working with real people in their real lives, I think there's power in that. And so that's the basic idea of, of the bucket strategy. Harold used just two buckets. I've talked about three buckets where you've kind of got one to two years worth of spending and portfolio withdrawals in cash, and then another, say, five to eight years worth of portfolio withdrawals in high quality bonds, and then the remainder of the portfolio in 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 equities and in, in other high risk assets. So that's where you would put precious metals to the extent that you owned them or junk bonds, anything that's really volatile that you'd want to have a nice long time horizon in mind for, that's where you would stash that stuff. So that's the basic 
bucket strategy. And certainly having those liquid reserves on standby is going to drag on the return of of the portfolio over time. So the name of the game is not having more in that cash bucket than you absolutely need. But I do think that behaviorally, the strategy really does work. It, it works for advisors as kind of a client illustration tool. And, and the interesting thing about it is that if you decompose a bucket portfolio, if you look sort of x-ray its asset allocation, oftentimes it is kind of a 50-50 or 60-40 asset allocation. So there's no real magic in the buckets, but it is a way to help someone make peace with their long-term asset allocation plan. So I don't know. I don't think it's so at odds with the approach that you're talking about, Cody, unless I'm kind of misunderstanding how you're approaching it. I think that the two, the two things are really pretty similar. Yeah. And I would say the two biggest things I see, I don't manage investments as a, as a planner, the two big things I see, I mean, I, I consider, of course, that short-term savings, you know, part that, that short-term savings bucket as part of the 40 of the 60-40, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when I look at other portfolios, actually, this kind of ties the correlations part at the beginning of our conversation. A lot of times I see like the, uh, you know, there's the 60-40, you, typically people think stocks are risky, bonds are safe, just generally, but yet like a lot of that 40% is actually in those highly correlated assets to the equity. So I think, again, it just has to be done like tactfully, but yeah, I'm just interested in, you know, if, if there's been any studies on, you know, what, like how much that withdrawal rate should be more conservative if, you, if you're using that approach. If you're using a bucket approach because you're assuming a slightly lower return of p- potential on the portfolio. Yeah, that's that's the yeah, that's correct. Yeah, it's a good question. It seems like you would want to reduce it slightly to account for the fact that you have the persistent drag of cash. It it would argue for having a slightly lower starting withdrawal. So yeah, good point. Good question. Fantastic, great question. Thank you, Cody. Christine, let's talk about the Morningstar study on sustainable distribution rates. Your study with your associates recently gave some updated data on what folks could expect from a, our, from a portfolio in terms of sustainable distribution rates, with the caveat that there exists a 10% failure rate for whatever the particular sustainable distribution rate is for a given time period that you show in your, in your paper. How should investors interpret that, that 10% failure rate? And how does that distribution rate change if investors would be more comfortable with a 5% or even a 1% failure rate? Yeah, good question, John. We modeled in a 90% success rate, 10% failure rate as sort of our baseline. But you can certainly fiddle with the probability that you're comfortable with. So if you're able to live with the idea of like a 20% probability of failure, you can certainly nudge your starting withdrawal rate up a little bit. But if you are wedded to having a very high probability of success, so like 95%, 99%, you would want to take your starting withdrawal rate down. So in our paper, that's kind of the baseline conclusion was that if you want a 90% chance of not running out of money over a 30-year time horizon and you have a balanced portfolio, kind of a 50-50 or 60-40 portfolio, and you're using kind of a fixed real withdrawal system, so like a bang-in style system of taking portfolio withdrawals, you'd want to start at 3.3% initially, and then you could inflation adjust that dollar amount thereafter. If you wanted a 95% success rate, 5% failure rate, well, 
that's a trade-off. You would have to bring that initial withdrawal rate down to 3.1% at 99% success rate. So just a teeny tiny failure rate, 1% failure rate, the starting withdrawal would be 2.5%. So you can see we're going down, down, down. And if you wanted to have 100% success rate on that balanced portfolio over 30-year time horizon, the starting withdrawal would have to be 1.9% based on our research and based on sort of our forward-looking forecasts of what our team expects the market to return over the next several decades. So my advice is don't do that. Don't anchor on 100% success rate because I think it would probably cause you to underspend during your retirement unless you hit the jackpot. In this case, the jackpot would be if everything is terrible over your retirement time horizon and you're right, then your 1.9% spending rate would have been right. But in most scenarios, that would cause you to substantially underspend. And I think unless you have a lot of wealth and 1.9% is a perfectly livable cash flow for you, then uh, be willing to live with a slightly high, higher probability of failure. And you know, just recognize that a 90% success rate is, is pretty darn high. And you'd have to be pretty unlucky to hit that period when the 3.3% initial withdrawal wouldn't, wouldn't stand up to a 30-year time horizon. That is so fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. That 2.5 figure for that 99% success rate and that 1.9, it's fascinating that 1.9% distribution rate for 100% success rate is the lowest number I've seen now for what is the most conservative distribution rate. Previously, the lowest figure I ever ever saw on, hey, what is sustainable distribution rate was something that Wade Fow put together. Uh, He says 2.4% given all the market events that we've seen come out of the uh, coronavirus crash, but 1.9%, that is a new record in terms of the super conservative distribution rate. But certainly to your point, uh, that is really for that worst case scenario and probably is not advised if you just want to take a little bit of risk. That is such an interesting uh, data point. Thank you uh, for sharing that. Sure. And John, I I would just point out, we're going to be updating this research every year and incorporating new forward-looking asset class return forecasts. So um, stay tuned. We'll We'll be keeping an eye on it. I think that you know, if there's a silver lining of what we've seen so far in 2022, we've had equity prices fall a little bit or, you know, about 10%, I guess, on the total U.S. market and, and bonds have fallen too, but but bond yields have come up. So my thought is that the raw materials, you know, as we're doing sort of a forward-looking expectation, the raw materials will look a little better when we revisit this this research later this year. Fascinating. I will certainly be checking that out. Han, go ahead and ask your question to Christine on asset correlation or sustainable distribution rates. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Now, uh, Christine, uh, I do have a question regarding to crypto. Crypto. It has become a new asset class over the last few years. And I don't know if if, uh, Morningstar has done any research on this new uh, asset class. And uh, I'm just curious to know, like, what's your take on it? Yeah, thanks for that question, Han. It's certainly a hot hot topic. And we do have a small team researching crypto. So look for more of us, more from us on that topic. We examined, I guess, the the reference point that I would make is in our correlations research, we did examine crypto and the correlations with US equity of crypto 
because I think that's one of the main arguments that you hear crypto enthusiasts advance is that, well, it's not correlated with other stuff that might be in your portfolio. And indeed, that was the case earlier in the ascent of crypto. More recently, I think we've seen correlations tighten up a little bit, and then they have uh, declined a little bit, again, very recently relative to U.S. equities. So it's something we've been watching. I think that that's a category where perhaps there's not any real clear, intuitive reason that we should see that correlation pattern persist, where we would continue to see crypto perform as a good diversifier for equity exposure. In fact, what we've tended to see is that it's a risk asset, a volatile asset. And and I think that's perhaps why we've seen some rising correlations recently. So we've been delving into it. I would say that it's very tricky to, well, it's it's impossible to kind of pin a value on crypto or, or tell anyone what it should be worth and whether it's a good buy or not such a good buy. But we're we're watching this evolving landscape and We'll probably have more to say about it in the years ahead. But thank you for that question. That's wonderful. So same takeaway that applies to other asset classes, and that's correlations are dynamic. So they do change over time. Crypto is no exception to that. Christine, before I wrap up, is there anything else you wanted to share before I give the end of the show? Well, I just want to thank everyone for being here. And also, John, you mentioned this conference that we have planned in October for the Vogelheads. It's going to be a really lovely gathering. I think I, it's always one of my favorite times every year. We're going to be meeting in the Chicago area, October 12th through 14th. And I think people will be pre- pleasantly surprised at how we are kind of hanging on to the, some, tr- some of the traditions of past Vogelheads events, but also bringing things forward. And also, I think we may have some interesting things to offer younger investors. So stay tuned. If people follow the Bogleheads Twitter handle, the the news will come out there and it'll also come out on Bogleheads.org. So just a plug in for keeping an eye on that space. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, I will definitely uh, be there. I'm very excited to attend the Bogleheads conference this year. It'll be my second time. I just can't wait to nerd out on investing (laughs) with all my fellow uh, Bogleheads. Man, it's going to be a real treat. And folks, that's at Bogleheads uh, on Twitter and Bogleheads.org is where you can find the forums to stay up to date on the latest. Well, folks, that is all the time that we have for today. Thank you to Christine Benz for joining us today. And thank you for everyone who joined us today for today's Bogleheads Live. Our next Bogleheads Live will be Thursday, April 21st at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. We'll be discussing mutual fund costs with Avantis Advisors' Sunil Wahal. The week after that, we'll have Eric Valchunas and his new book, The Bogle Effect. Between now and then, you can submit your questions for Sunil and Eric on the Bogleheads Forum at Bogleheads.org and on Bogleheads Reddit. Until then, you can access the Bogleheads Forum, Bogleheads Wiki, Bogleheads Reddit, Bogleheads Facebook, Bogleheads Twitter, Bogleheads YouTube, Bogleheads Local Chapter, Shout out to my San Diego group, Bogleheads Virtual Chapters, the Bogleheads On Investing Podcast, Bogleheads Conferences and Books, the John C. Bogle Center for Financial Literacy. It's a 501c3 nonprofit organization. At BogleCenter.net, your tax-deductible donations are greatly appreciated. Thank you again, everyone. I look forward to seeing you all again on next Thursday, April 21st at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, where we'll be discussing mutual fund costs. Until then, have a great week, and let's let the trumpet take us out. <laughs>